Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Today we are going to continue unpacking Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I'm going to guess we'll be here today and next week as well. And maybe the next week. Not sure. We're not in a hurry. Uh, These verses are just too important. Let's read them. Oh, by the way, if you don't have a sermon handout, It's the same as last week's if you have that. But if you don't have it, raise your hand. If you have it and you know it's at home and it's already in the bird cage, uh, that's all right too. Uh, We'll get you a new one because you're going to need another one for the bird cage this week. Please make sure everybody has one. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, to faith, as it is written in the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Last week we partially unpacked two very important truths. We want to take them a little further, and then we will begin to get into the passage itself. Two very important truths. Matter of fact, we call them the two most important truths in all the world. The first one is that God be glorified. Now, for most people, maybe not many of you, we talk about it a lot here, but even that needs some defining because glorifying God is not just singing about God and all those things. Remember, glorifying God is showing God for who He really is. Rubbing the tarnish away from the precious metal so that the precious metal can shine forth. Taking away all the crazy ideas and the personalizations that we've done with God over the years, and boy, have we ever done them. We have made God kind of into whatever it is that we want Him to be. And then secondly, to understand how we are to be reconciled to Him. How is it that we can have a relationship with Him? There's nothing in the world more important than those two things. And I know there's a lot going on in our world right now. There's some things that seem catastrophic, overwhelming, all of that, I got it. But I can tell you there's nothing in the world more important than that we understand and manifest and show forth who God really is, that's glorifying Him, And that secondly, we figure out or understand His plan 
for us becoming reconciled to him. He revealed himself to us. We talked about that last week, general revelation. That's what people see. Paul talks about that in this very chapter as well. The invisible things of God are seen in the visible things, and, and it was known to everybody. Then there's special or particular revelation, and that would be the word that he gave us, the gospel, the, uh, the written word of God. And then there's the ultimate personal revelation of God, and that is himself, himself. When he came and he lived among us and died on the cross and walked in our presence, and, and we have his word to teach us what all of that was like, how he felt about sin, how he felt about the sick, how he felt about the hurting, how he felt about hypocrisy, how he felt about all of those things, we were able to see it firsthand in that personal revelation, that ultimate revelation of God Almighty. So we knew, Paul says, and here's where we began to plow some new land this morning. Paul says, yeah, we knew. People knew. In this same chapter, we don't have to go out of context for this, in verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen notice how he kind of went and did a little worship right there at the very end of that it's just more than he could stand they exchanged the truth of god they knew what god was about he says the invisible things of God are seen in the visible things. And he says they're without excuse. He will say that in the next chapter. They knew God. We knew God as human beings, but we did not glorify Him as God or show Him as who really, truly was. And then we began to worship the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice the first part, though. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's to pseudai. To is, a, uh, uh, is, is an article, a definite article. We would translate it as the. In the Greek, if you don't have a definite article, you assume an indefinite article. But here we have a definite article. So it's not that they just exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And I would like to take just a second to talk about, well, what is the lie? Sometimes when we really want to emphasize the priority of something, we'll say, boy, that is, that's the car right there. Or, boy, that is, that is the whatever. That, that, that is, boy, the gospel right there, we might even say. What is the lie? Well, I think we probably ought to just go back to the first one that was ever told. Because that lie is still being told and believed today. So what is the lie? Well, remember, Satan in Genesis chapter 3 told Adam and Eve, or told Eve in particular, that the Lord knows that in the day you eat from that forbidden fruit that your eyes will be opened. We call that woke today. But you'll, yeah, your eyes will be open. 
And what will you know? How does he describe this wokeness? He says you will be like God, first of all, and you will know good and evil. You won't have to depend on some old preacher in a Baptist church somewhere thumping a Bible telling you what you ought to believe and what you shouldn't believe and how you ought to live and how you shouldn't live. You can be woke and set free from all of that nonsense. Now, that's what Satan said. You don't have to live by God's understanding of good and evil. He's okay with you, you know, kind of uh, adding some of your own thoughts and ideas to it. He gave you a mind. He expected you to think with it. And, and it's sort of like Satan telling Eve, well, why would he put the tree over there if he didn't want you to eat from it? What's the big deal? Why would he even put it in the garden? Why would he let it bear fruit right in front of you every day if he wasn't connivingly trying to keep something from you. I will tell you, friend, that is the lie. And people are still believing. Oh, today, man, and I'm, I, I, it's, it's not the crazies out there marching up and down the street half-naked or whatever they're doing or, 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 or demanding that the, the Depravity be legislated uh, uh, into law and free and open and all. It's, it's not that them that that's actually doing the worst damage here. It is people who have caught into this idea of progressive or liberal Christianity. Maybe they call it open-minded Christianity, and they feel like they've finally been set free. They bought a book by somebody and. He or she told them, you know, that what you've heard all your life is a load of hogwash. It's people trying to control your life. It's people trying to jerk you around, tell you what to do, and all of that. You can be set free from all of that. And as a matter of fact, uh, you'll find most of them sitting at home this morning. They finally uh, went church to church until that, that freedom is best expressed on the couch. You can just listen to whomever, read whomever, and feel sorry for your old dumb yokes from South Carolina like me that doesn't know any better than to believe that if God said it, it was true then, and it's true now. Well, we learned something then. First of all, when we manifested God, looked at God as to who he really was, we discovered he's holy. We discovered something else, though, didn't we? That we're not. And that brings us to the second most important thing. How is it that since God cannot permit anything in his presence but perfect righteousness, since God holds to the, the, the understanding that to be in relationship with him, the only way you can do that is to be perfectly righteous. And since you and I are perfectly unrighteous, that brings us to our second point. How do we get that fixed? I didn't say how do we fix it. That's been our problem. But God's got to fix it. And, and, and that's why I want us to spend probably at least two more weeks on these two verses. Because these two verses are not only the theme of Romans, it's the theme of the gospel. It's the theme you could, it, it just sums it up so well. Exactly how it is that you and I 
who are unrighteous can become righteous. It's just such a powerful, powerful word. Verse 1, or chapter 118, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. He said, That's coming. How are you going to escape it? What's the plan? You're going to try to cut it back to just 10 cuss words this week? Good for you. What, what, what's your plan to, to, to get, escape all of that? You go, Start coming to church, Moai. I hear that so often. Boy, I, I, know, I know I need to get in church. Uh, that'd be like, I know I need to park my car out in front of the hospital. I'd feel better. It, yeah, that nothing, that's not going to help you. And you, we cannot do this on our own. And by the way, when he says the wrath of God is revealed against all righteousness, we don't have a problem with God being just and righteous and demanding perfect righteousness when we're talking about Nazis who kill babies or the Stalins or the Pol Pots or the murderers out there or the abortion doctors or whatever it might be. In our world today, for some, it's those who are intolerant, those who are close-minded. It is not, it, it, that's not, you know, sometimes we, we think, God, we want you to take care of that. As a matter of fact, do you think if God let Adolf Hitler off scot-free that that would mean he is a righteous and just God? Absolutely not. But I can tell you this, if he were to let me off scot-free, he still would not be just and he still would not be righteous. So it's easy to throw that around about, well, one of these days they're going to stand before God. Yeah, I'm telling you, one of these days we all going to stand before God. And just because we love His justice and His righteousness when He's about to attack our enemies and wipe them off the face of the earth, we love that. It guides how we interpret Revelation most of the time. We don't know when inside, buddy. And man, He's coming with power. And, and of course, you know, they're riding horses. Uh, that's called the gas prices. But all of that is coming. And we're tickled to death about it. But when it comes to our own family members, we're like, well, you know, God knows his heart. Sure does. God knows how hard I've tried. He sure does. But he says, I'm coming with my wrath against all unrighteousness. Not just some of it. Well, it's important for us to understand the gospel then, and it's on the front of your handout, I believe. A quote from John Piper. I love the way he sums it up. God demands righteousness and we don't have it. That's our problem. The only hope for us is that God himself would give us the righteousness he demands. And I shared with you last week that when Dr. Piper shared about this verse, he read it intentionally wrong. He read the verse that said that in it, the, the gospel, that the love of God was revealed. And while that is true, that in the gospel the love of God is revealed, that's not what Paul said. And you and I need to make sure we understand why he didn't say that. Now, stay with me here. Stay with me here. 
this right here is one of the crossroads that we have trouble with with biblical theology and progressive theology both both of us know that god loves us but the progressives don't seem to understand or want to embrace what that exactly means what does it mean that god loves us and the idea that they come away with when they don't look at the word biblically is that well just because he loves us it's going to all be cool no matter what in the end his love is going to win out because boy if it wasn't for his love i'd be headed to hell that's a true statement but it's not having his love that does it it was because of his love that he came and died on the cross and he paid the debt for our sins so he could give us his righteousness as a gift of grace because it's not oh what would i do without his love it's oh what would i do without his righteousness because i want to tell you and it's biblical god can love you and you go to hell as a matter of fact that's why people don't even believe in hell anymore a lot of people, if they do believe in it, they deny believing in it. They just can't fathom it. They just can't imagine it in their mind. How in the world could a loving God do something like that? It's because you don't understand what Him loving us caused Him to do for us. It's almost like saying, well, yeah, I know I've failed, but God is so nice. That's that he is sometimes but God is righteous and the only way we can have a relationship with him is righteousness he has to give us his righteousness one more quote by John Piper I don't want to do too many of his quotes you'll stay home next week and just listen to him I don't care if you listen to him all next week he brings a great word. Here's a quote, though, I love. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. I'm going to read it again. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. You see, the love of God never trifles with unrighteousness and wrath. He can love you. Remember he said when the rich young ruler walked away in Mark's account, he said Jesus looked at him and loved him. Remember how he sat down and wept. He cried when he looked at Jerusalem and said, I'd have loved to have brought you under my wings like a mother hen does their chicks. I'd have loved to have done that for you. He wept, but it wasn't shedding his tears that could save Jerusalem. It was shedding his blood. And that's what they never put their faith in. Well, let's start our outline finally. That outline means nothing. It's just a guide to help us unpack these verses a little better. But let's take a look at what Paul says 
about how is it that the gospel works then? Exactly how is it that I receive this righteousness from God? He talks about, first of all, there is a stigma with the gospel. Verse 16, he makes sort of an odd statement. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he ever even say that? What would ever give him any reason to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, if you read about his preaching and how it was accepted, you'll understand it didn't bring a life of ease to, to Paul. I'm not sure. Sometimes, actually, I'm being, I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, uh, sarcastic. <laughs> You'd think Paul would have had him one of those Lear jets. You know what I'm saying? Don't get all mad at me because brother so-and-so that you've already bought his prayer cloth and you've already, you know, whatever. I don't know. I hope you haven't. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, it, you would think if, Preaching the gospel made you rich, boy. Paul would have bought Bill Gates and sold him for $2. That's not what happened in Paul's life. Paul says, I was imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea to save my life. They laughed me out of Athens. And at Corinth, he said, they said my message was foolishness. He says the Greeks thought it was just a bunch of bunk, a bunch of crazy foolishness. And the Jews, I didn't bring them one step closer to God. If they ever had a chance, my preaching was a stumbling block to them. And they fell completely on their face over this idea of the cross. Paul knew. Now he's not been to Rome yet, but he's going to go there. And he knows when he does go there, it would be like sending me. Just think about this. And I'm not trying to make a comparison to me with Paul. I never would. But just imagine you sending me to Hollywood to preach for a week. I think there's something up. If you told me, Pastor, free plane ticket, you won't need one to come back. But we're going to send you to Hollywood to preach for a week. Road day, old drive. And, and we want you to tell them like it is. You know about how well that would be accepted. Paul knows I'm about to go before the intelligentsia. Sort of like he did in Acts 17 when he met with the philosophers on Mars Hill. And it says after he finished preaching that some of them sneered at him. As a matter of fact, they already told him when he walked up, says let's hear what this, the word means seed picker has to say. In that day, if you were in a philosophical uh, support group, I'll call it, uh, and you had ideas, they called it seed picking. You got an idea and grabbed another idea and another idea, and, and these guys would critique you that way. You're just coming up with a bunch of crazy, uh, unconnected ideas, and it doesn't make sense. And they, they said, so let's hear what this seed picker has to say. And boy, it says they sneered when he finished preaching, but it also says some believe. Boy, wouldn't you hate to get kicked out of that group? Some believe. 1 Corinthians 18, uh, 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, for we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles. It is nothing but foolishness. But to those of us who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power 
of God and the wisdom of God. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know about you personally, but I know for me, I rarely experience any measure of persecution. Ah, criticism. Even in all of the difficult places I, I, I preached in and really only had one church that was, and it was a blessing in many ways, but the second church I pastored in a, another county a long ways from here was a very difficult church. I was very young and immature, and they were very old and immature. It was tough. I've been to some third world countries. I've been to some places and preached where it was against the law to preach. But I have never really been persecuted. I, 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 and, and I understand that. But I can tell you something, friend. If you preach the gospel, and if we keep preaching the gospel, the day is coming when persecution is going to come with it. It's not, it's, it's, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more and more difficult as time goes on, and we need to make sure we remember that. One of the things I would just say, though, the reason I bring it up, it does hurt me sometimes when I have dear friends, and hear this the right way, who look at me like, well, with your education, and I tried, I, I was studious, and with all your reading, and I'm a bookworm, they look at me and wonder why or how I can believe such simplistic, foolish ideas like God taking the life of his son to pay for my sin. It's foolishness to them. It's foolishness. Number two, the strength. The strength of the gospel. Verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation. Oh, I love the song Miss Brandy sang today. And I saw her today throwing that head back. Yeah, I hadn't seen that. A little more active activity than we're used to seeing but boy what a beautiful job and what a great song about the power there's power in the name of jesus and he says this this the in the gospel it is the power of god for salvation there, there are two words for power in the greek one is exousia exousia is a word that means really authority First, John, uh, first chapter of John, to those who believe, he gave them the authority, the exousia, to become children or sons of God. That's the authority. Gave them the right, the ability. But then there's another word for power that just means raw power. And that's the word dunamis. Now, you know what word we get from dunamis. We get our word dynamite. I've always thought it was somewhat ironic that the one for whom the Nobel Peace Prize is named, his invention to get the prize was dynamite. David 
Nobel, I believe. I can't remember his first name. We didn't talk, but just a little while. But, huh? That's what I said. Albert Nobel. Dynamite. Dynamite moves stuff it doesn't want to move. I, I, I remember several years ago, I, I used to work with John Crowder. Some of you know him uh, personally. If you don't, he's a great friend of mine. We used to work together some because the church I was in at the time for a while was a lot smaller. And so I worked on the side and we put pipe, big pipe up under highways and stuff. And of course, we had these huge track excavators and uh, 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 we'd be digging out dirt and all that stuff, you know, and setting up everything. We always, as old as we were, we were both grown men, but we, neither of us was mature enough to not get excited when we knew we were going to have to set off dynamite. Oh, I believe we're going to have to drill, John. Yeah, I think so. And boy, we'd drill those holes and we'd just keep dropping sticks down in there, man. And buddy, when you set her off, we left to just count to see how many doors on mobile homes flew open as soon as you hit the button. Oh, we were. It, it was something. But dynamite is a spectacular thing. It moves things that don't normally move. It takes the unmovable. It will change the landscape of a mountainside. And I'm just telling you, make sure you get this. The gospel is not just advice that we should do better. No, the gospel is power, Paul says, to make us better. And if you think, well, I'd like to have that in my life, but, 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 but I'm addicted to methamphetamine. That's a, that's a good candidate for some dynamite. Or maybe you have some other addiction in your life. Or maybe you're in a marriage where you have already uh, been unfaithful or whatever, and it's just a disaster, and there's no way it can all come back together. I'm telling you, all of those are candidates for the dunamis of God. Because God's power can take things that don't want to move, that, 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 don't, that won't get out of your life. Things you've tried, you, you just, it, it just is like moving a mountain of granite. I am telling you, the power of the gospel can change those things. That's what the gospel is. It doesn't just bring power. It is. It is power. And now I want us to really get to a powerful truth here. <laughs> Speaking of power. You know, we teach here, and the New Testament teaches this. Not, we didn't make it up. The New Testament teaches that we are saved, and we are being saved, and we shall be saved. Now, we understand that once you are saved, you're saved. We got that. But the New Testament doesn't quite just frame it that way it frames it in a deeper even more meaningful way we are saved when we accept christ whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord uh, he shall be saved and then we are being saved i, I want to read this and then we're going to unpack it a little more but first corinthians 1 18 for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved see we all we got saved christ we accepted him as our savior now we are being saved and then romans 5 9 says we shall 
be saved one day from the wrath to come. Boy, I want to, if we don't get but one truth from this series of messages, I hope it's this one. A lot of times we get saved. We even say it that way. I understand. I do too. I got saved. I got saved February 13th, 1980. I wish I'd have understood more about this process and these two verses than I do than I did then. Because not only did I get saved, he came into my heart and life, saved me from my sinfulness. That was on a Wednesday. What I didn't understand was on a Thursday, he was still the one saving me. And then on Friday, he was still the one saving me. And at the age of 62, no, you can't believe it, he's still saving me. He's still saving me. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, there's Scripture all over the New Testament about us being saved. And the reason we don't get it, the reason we read over them so quickly, is we, we kind of frame salvation as if, well, God saved us. He kicked us in the backside into a world and said, okay, you're on board. And the door slammed behind us. And we felt like, okay, here we are all by ourselves. I might quit cussing, smoking, drinking. Probably thinking about all the things your wife's got to quit doing. Worse than you, right? But you're thinking, okay, I got to do this. Got I got to get in church. I got, I, boy, I, you felt like you were on your own. And, and let me just tell you this. I, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up in a very traditional Baptist church. And we got saved a lot. And I don't mean we didn't believe in eternal security, but every once in a while, somebody who had been saved a year or two, they'd walk the aisle. Did you grow up in a church like that? And they'd come down to the front and they'd say, uh, I just don't feel like I got it. I don't feel like I meant it, preacher. I, I just don't feel like I was serious. I don't feel like I understood. And they want to get saved again. And then we had another thing that wasn't quite as powerful as getting saved. It was called rededicate your life. Now that's not a full overhaul. That's just pouring in some mystery marvel oil. Okay? It's not a full resalvation. But you feel like you need to do something. You know, man, I want to tell you. I think I know why we did that so much. Somebody mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, look up Lodge. I got saved there every summer. Every summer. I'd go get around that campfire. We'd have a stick burning. Boy, I couldn't handle a stick burning. Stick represented some sin in your life. I'd go up there and i put mine on the fire. Mine blaze up and burn the buildings down. But Oh, that stick had burned. I knew it. As soon as they said we we're going to pass out sticks, I thought, oh, I'm about to get saved. Just know it. You know why I think we did that? I think we meant well. I know I did. My heart was in the right place, but my brain wasn't. I think we longed for the day we got saved. 
And how when we accepted Christ initially, we came broken and dependent. We didn't come before God and say, God, I'm going to try my best to get saved. You didn't have somebody walk over to you at the altar and say, are you there yet? No, not yet. Just give me a few more minutes. It, it just wasn't like that. We were dependent on God. We said, God, I can't do this without you. You didn't come down there offering God anything, promising God anything. You didn't feel like you had been an embarrassment to God. You just knew you'd have been an embarrassment to the whole world. And you just fell before God, humbly knowing that He was your only hope. Our problem is, if you did that on Sunday, on Monday, He is still your only hope. And you got to come before Him on Monday just like you did on Sunday. I didn't say get saved again, but you are saved and you are being saved still by the grace of God. Except unless you get that truth, you'll start trying to do it in your own power. It is almost like in our minds God picked us up out of the mud, dusted us off, set us down in a good clean spot and said, all right, you be a little good little boy from now on. And we felt all of that on us. And I can tell you, if you're like me, you were terrible at being a good little boy. And you'd feel guilty. And you'd hate yourself. And then you'd try again. And then you would come with promises. God, if you'll forgive me. I remember every year when we had communion, every, or every time we had communion, we had it more than once a year, but every time we had communion and the preacher would give that sermon about if you got sin in your life, God killed some of them at Corinth for that. And I was like, oh, Lord, God, no, Jesus. Don't kill me, Lord. And I'd start confessing stuff I didn't even know if I'd done. Or if Steve, my brother, had done it. One of us did it, God. Scared to death. Fear. Ignorance. Trying to do it on my own. You can't save yourself. And you can't keep yourself saved. You see why it sounds so stupid now to even ask the question, do you think you can lose your salvation? That's an incredible question. That question doesn't even make sense, does it? Because he saved you. And he keeps you saved. He's the one that's keeping you saved today. We ought to start asking each other that more often instead of, hey, did you get saved? Yep. We ought to say, are you being saved? Yes, sir. I'm being saved, buddy. Every day of our life, depending upon Him. I didn't say you get saved again every day. I am telling you that it is a process that you entered when you put your faith and trust in God. Quit trying to take care of the work He did in your life. You cannot do it. You are as helpless to, to live the life as you were to get the life. He's got to do that powerful truth in the handout i have a little blurb i think somewhere on the back maybe don't leave the key in the door it's like the key was the gospel trusting christ was the gospel coming humbly before him was the gospel and we opened the door and we left the key in it and we went on and now we're on our own trying our best and if we mess up our thinking was for many many years and a lot of people are still there I need to go all the way back to the door and get saved again and try, try again. It's so foolish. We didn't invent the idea, though, of some of these crazy 
things. If you ever wonder where sprinkling for baptism came from, there was a time when the church was a few hundred years old, especially during the time of Constantine, that people thought that once you were baptized, you couldn't sin after that. If you did, you lost it. So what they would do is they would wait till they were nearly dead. I call it too sick to sin. When they knew I'm so weak I couldn't hit the clubs tonight if I had to. I, I'm too old to commit adultery. I think, preacher, I'm on my last leg. Well, putting somebody that old all the way underwater might not only call for a baptismal service, but maybe a funeral afterwards. So instead of putting them completely underwater, they would sprinkle them. As a matter of fact, Constantine himself never was baptized until he was on his deathbed to keep from doing something that might take away his salvation. So foolish. Let me give you a few verses. I don't even know what time it is, but I, we, we'll, we'll be all right. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you. Oh, really? God's working on this job? What if you were building a house, Bruce? Glad I saw you there. What if you were building a house somewhere and you were having a really hard time with stuff and then you found out God was on that job? And you needed to get all that sheathing up on the roof. I believe if I were you, if I were you I'd find him. You know what I'm saying? It, God's on this job. He's the one that, that is at work in us. God is at work in you, Paul says, both to will and to work. See, that was my problem. My will was to be sinful. But he says, no, 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 no. He says, God is at work in you to help you to want to do the right thing. And then to work means he will help you to do the right thing. I don't know how you can beat that. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm wondering why we're not standing up waving our shirts right now praising God. It is so, such an awesome truth. God's at work in you to make you to want to do the right thing and to work to do it for His good pleasure. Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then I love this one other one. Jude 24, don't ask me which chapter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You mean I'm going to stand before God one day blameless? Go back to my hometown. Tell them, hey, I heard Mike Snowgrove. We don't know when yet. But one of these days, he's going to stand before God blameless. 
you blow their mind. But I am. I'm going to stand before God blameless. Not because of anything I've ever done, friend. Not because of anything I've done to get saved. Not because of anything I've done since I've been saved. Not for anything I will do to be saved. It is God. It is God who will allow me to stand in His presence. Blameless. Do you realize how much anxiety you're going to have if you were standing before God right now? I would. I, I'd, I'd, I'd have to get a pill under my tongue or something. Hope, <laughs> Hope Dr. Beasley's got a few on him. If We're going to go out in the parking lot and meet God right now. You, you understand what I'm saying. It, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The Word tells us that. But to stand before God and know that despite all you've ever done, you will stand before Him blameless. Blameless. Man, what an incredible, incredible truth. I'm going to stop there for today, but as I close, let me just say this. Keep singing. Keep singing. If, if, if you got saved on Sunday to I surrender all, sing it again on Monday. And on Tuesday, say, Lord, I didn't do so well yesterday, but just as I am, Without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. I come. I come to thee. Charlotte Elliott was a mean old woman. Grew up with a lot of sickness. Bitter. And hated God. Her daddy was a preacher, and, or a Christian at least. He brought preachers in try to pray with her and help her. She resented every bit of it. But one day God got a hold of her heart. And not only saved her, but she was being saved. And then one day she was completely saved. But after she really met Christ, she wrote those words. Just as I am. Without one plea. I don't have a defense, God. All I got is that your blood was shed for me. And then on Wednesday, now you're going to need another one. Have Thine Own Way is a good Wednesday song. See, we have all these invitation songs. Back when I used to play a lot, I'd come out here and I'd play just one old invitation song after another. They're my favorite in all the hymns. Because they took me back to that sweet time when I knew it wasn't me. And I knew it wasn't about me trying. I knew I was just broken and helpless before God. 
See, that's how you have to live every day. Live every day. We're going to talk about it next week. But when he says it's the power of salvation to those who believe, in the Greek, and I don't want you to get to shouting here now, but that is a present perfect participle. Calm down. Literally, Paul says to those who are what? How would you translate that? Those who are believing. That's one of those I-N-G words. That's not Greek. That's English. Shouldn't have been passing notes that day getting on that. It's participle. Literally in the Greek, Paul says it's the power of salvation to those who are believing. Not just something you did, not a box you checked years ago, not a ticket you got punched, but to those every day in their life who come before God humbly, believing, knowing on my own God, I can a bit more live for you today than I could have saved me back in February 13th, 42 years ago. Can't do it. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe right now you'd just like to say, God, I want to surrender. It's not that you need to get saved. If you do need to get saved, I, I would sure encourage that. But I'm going to say most of you here are saved. But I'm going to say also most of you here like me. You really gum it up when it comes to living it. You can mess it up. Matter of fact, it, we even say it. We say, oh, I got saved, and that's when the war began. Well, that may be true. But if you let him fight it, he'll win it. Maybe you feel so despondent. Maybe you feel like, well, I got saved, and then my whole life fell apart. I got saved, and... All of a sudden, it was like the devil was all over me. I'm going to tell you, friend. As we'd say down here in the south, God's his daddy. You need to quit try, trying to fight the devil. You need to find out that God's on this job. You need to quit trying to lift stuff that you can't budge and fight things that whips you on a regular basis. You just say, I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. God, I surrender all. I don't want to rededicate my life today, God. I don't need to get saved again. Maybe you'd just like to say to Him, right now as you sit there, God, I need you today. I need you, Lord. I, maybe you feel like that I, you got saved and you just got shoved into a world all on your own and you've been trying to navigate that thicket of don't do this and do that and, and do this better and do that less. and It's just been a mess. No joy. No. 
He says one day we can stand before him blameless, full of joy. That's a great truth. I pray right now you just maybe whisper those words to him. God, I give up. I don't care if you shout them. But tell him, God, I give up. I've been bitter even, Lord. I blame this mess I've made of my Christian walk on you, Lord. Did you feel abandoned by him? Did you feel like that he shoved you into a world you weren't ready for? I'm so sorry. Our Father, I come to you right now, Lord, and I ask you, please, speak to every heart here. Every heart, God. I pray whoever's here today that's struggling and fighting, Lord, it might not just be with sin. It might be with other things. It, it, it could be with depression or despondency. Maybe life has gotten so difficult, Lord, it just doesn't even make sense anymore. I pray, God, that You would help us today to renew, not promises, but to renew our dependence upon You, God. I pray, Father, instead of just holding each other accountable as to what we did or didn't do, but I pray, God, that we would hold each other more often accountable about are You dependent on the Lord? That we would ask each other, how's that being saved going for you? Are you walking with Christ? Are you letting Him fight those battles? I pray You'd help us with that, God. Lord, we most, mostly came out of cultures of legalism. Right and wrong, and guilt and shame. We've not done any better since we started following You, Lord. Some of us fighting fighting to be worthy of what you did for us. Help us, God, today to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.